So where are we with the authority of Jesus? Where are we with the authority of Jesus? Paul has a throwaway line. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to take this down. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. That word power in Greek is the word from which you and I get our English word, dynamite. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in dunamis, dynamite. The power of God, the same power that created heaven and earth, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You and I get to think every week about the most important person, the most interesting person who's ever lived. Paul uses the wonderful phrase in one of his letters, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And Jesus Christ is like the hope diamond. It doesn't matter how many angles you look at it by, how many ways you consider it, there's always another way and another impression to get some sense of the spectacular beauty of the thing. His resources are inexhaustible. And when I talk to people about Jesus, I sometimes say, what does it say about Jesus that the size of the rock that was dropped in him in the pond of human history is as big as it is because we're still thinking about him 21 centuries later and look at the influence. It's a pretty big rock. It's a pretty important rock. And there are so many facets of Jesus' ministry that are so interesting. He's a healer. He's a shepherd. He's a friend. He's a listener. He's a question work, questioner. He's a, a miracle worker. I could go on all morning, but this morning we want to consider an element of his life and ministry that doesn't get much play, particularly in the Western church, his authority. Every week we say in the creed, I'm going to quote the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So another way you can think about the question I'm asking is this. You say every week, every week you say in the creed, I believe in the Lordship of Christ. Do you really? Do you live it? Do you pray it? Do you display it in your life? That's the question. All right, now we're going to need to look at our text. So if you'd be so kind to get your Bible out, we're in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. And we're no longer using the little handy-dandy leaflets. We're using pew Bibles, which is encouraging because the Bible was actually written as a book. You do know this, right? It goes from, it goes from geniuses to revolution, one goofy person has said, right? It actually starts in a garden, and it ends in a garden. And the, the problem with the leaflets is not the leaflets. It's that if you keep using the leaflets, you don't think of the book as a book with chapters that cohere and actually make sense and a story. So the reason you have to get a Bible out and start looking at the Bible is because you have to start thinking about the Bible as a book because that's the way God gave it to us. If you don't like it, you can take it up with him later. But that's, that's what we have to deal with. So we're in Mark, and we're in the early part of Mark, and we're in this section of Mark where he's doing lots of first things. Jesus' first action is being baptized, and then he's, uh, he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and then he does his first act of public ministry, which is he preaches the gospel, then he calls his disciples, and this morning we come to, in Mark's gospel, his first miracle. Oh boy, must be significant. I'm going to tell you this endlessly 
What, how you start something and how you end something is of terribly important significance. How you begin a marriage, how you begin a company, how you begin a church, how you begin a ministry, how much time do you have? It's like the bottom button of a coat. You get that one wrong, you, the whole thing's in alignment, but the whole thing's cattywampus if you get the bottom button wrong. doesn't matter how many t- bu- other buttons you get right if you don't build the right foundation. So here's Jesus, and this is the first miracle in Mark's gospel. Must be important. Hmm. What does it say? Now look at your text and think. You can see the theme, but I want to make sure that you're persuaded that I'm onto something. So look at verse 22 and think about what it would be like to be a person who's a fly on the wall or in the back of the synagogue and to witness this whole thing and notice what's said. They were astonished at his teaching. Everybody see where I am in verse 22? For he taught them as one who had authority. There it is at the beginning. And then in case we missed it, and we shouldn't have, but just in case we missed it, look at verse 27. And they were all amazed, and they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? There's that word again, authority. So all these facets of Jesus that you can think about, but the one that we're onto is this. My way of articulating it is this. If you encounter Jesus in his biblical fullness, and you really see him for who he is, This is the overriding impression that he gives you. He makes a claim, C-L-A-I-M. That is to say, if you think about the way that he's dealing with this scene, it's not just that he's in charge of the synagogue. It's not just that he's in charge of all the people he's teaching. It's not just that he's in charge of the demonic, although all that's true. It's that he's in charge of the whole thing. He comes in and he makes a claim. And it's so striking and so overwhelming, they're amazed, they're astonished. It takes their breath away. This is not like anything they've ever seen before. Now look at your text and let's think about this act of authority of Jesus. We're going to break it down. I know you're going to be shocked into three parts. (laughs) First of all, it's personal. Mark is at great pains to get you to see this. When you look at this text and you think about the authority of Jesus, what you have to understand first is that it's all about him. You need to think no further than the Sermon on the Mount. It was said, but I say to you, verse 22, literally in the Greek, they were astonished at the teaching of him. Verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits. And that word, when he says uh, that, that command that he gives is a word that's used in Mark later when Herod commands that John the Baptist's head be brought to him. It's a very, very strong authoritative word for command. So this is what the missiologists call, and I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but I want to get you familiar with it because it's very cool. They call it a power encounter. And it happens very often in the mission field, particularly in animist and... Uh, Uh, multi uh, other religion contexts and other faith contexts where there's lots of gods and demigods and the the trees are gods and the plants are gods and lots of times when you read the missionary accounts when the gospel actually gets in there there's some kind of confrontation there's some kind of massive encounter between Jesus and the demonic as it manifests itself through all these false gods that's what's going on here this is a very clearly a power encounter Now, as we go flying by, I don't want you to miss the significance of the fact that what's said in verse 24, I want you to notice that the demons get it right. And did you notice that I said demons, plural? And did you notice what the question was? It's so striking. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you notice something? How many demons are speaking? 
one, but he doesn't use the singular. Jesus is speaking to a demon. He's confronting the entire demonic realm. Not just this demon is threatened. This demon is threatened on behalf of the whole realm because the whole realm is threatened. You talk about laying a claim. What have you to do with us? Now, interestingly, sick individuals in the Gospels call Jesus teacher, son of David, or master. Only God or supernatural beings or those with special revelation know who he is. And demons address him only as the Holy One, Son of God, Mark 3, Mark 5. All this contributes to the gospel's quite careful differentiation between sickness and disease and demon possession. They're very different things. And if we had time this morning, I'd take you far afield because uh, there's a lot of bad teaching on demon possession. And the one thing I want you to note just in passing is if you ever encounter a demon, and I hope you never do, it's only happened to me twice in my life, you don't have a question about whether it's a demon. What you have a question about is, oh no, what do I do? It doesn't happen very often. You can believe in demons too much and you can believe in them not enough. And we're in the West, so guess where we fall? Most of us so-called enlightened, scientific, sophisticated 21st century individuals, we don't believe in demons. Well, Jesus is different. The Gospels are different. The Bible is different. Okay, so here comes this authority, and it's very clearly about him. It's his teaching, and it's his command, and the demon is centered on him. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, verse 24? In John's gospel, there are seven I am statements. Do you know them? You should. They're all so striking. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And that word, I am, the Bible's like a piano that's opened up. Whenever you strike a key, when a piano's opened up, it doesn't just play that key. It reverberates up and down the whole instrument. So when you hear that word, I am, you think of Exodus 3, because that's the first place where it appears in the Bible. You remember Exodus 3, the burning bush, and Moses turns aside, and the voice says, Take off the shoes from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Moses encounters Yahweh for who he is, and Moses says toward the end of the scene, Now hold on a second. If they ask me who you are, what do I, what do I say? And he says, I am who I am. I am has sent you. I am is going to be with you. I am the God of this people. I am who I am. And this is the Jesus whom we have to do. It's the Jesus of the burning bush. It's this God. It's very clear that it reverberates. So first of all, it's personal. It comes to him. If you have Jesus in your life and he doesn't have authority, you're not dealing with the biblical Jesus. It's, a, it's not just authority. It's personal authority. It's awesome authority. It's earth-shattering authority. Are we all together? Okay, so first of all, it's personal. Second of all, it's powerful, and Mark's at great pains to get you to understand this. Both at the beginning and the end, and in the middle, it's, it's constantly being emphasized. Verse 22, that verb, which is translated right here, astonished. You see where I am, verse 22? They were astonished, literally, to strike out of one's senses with a sense of being utterly amazed and left at a loss because you've witnessed the incredible. You are dumbfounded with amazement. My brother went to the Grand Canyon before I did, and he told me only one thing. He said, Kendall, you get out of your car, and you're there. And I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about until I got there. And it's just absolutely, it's literally true. You just get out of your car. It's, you sort of want like a band and a stairway, and, 
but it's just, it's, and, and it just takes your breath away. It's just unbelievable. And it takes your breath away all day. It doesn't matter what part of the rim you're on. It's unbelievable. That's this word. Dumbfounded. It's that pretty. It's that glorious. It's that They can't handle this guy. This is not like anything they've ever seen. Now, this thing in the middle, this demonic uh, possession and deliverance, that, the, the verbs in there are very, very striking, very strong. Here's um, Eugene Peterson's The Message, translation of verse 25 and 26. Quiet! Get out of him! The afflicting spirit threw the man into spasms, protesting loudly, and got out. Everyone there was spellbound, buzzing with curiosity. What's going on here? A new teaching, and what is it? He shuts up defiling demonic spirits and tells them to get lost. News of this traveled fast and soon was all over Galilee. And just in case you missed it, on those two places, go to the end and you get another word. They were amazed, verse 27, which is a different word than verse 22, astonished. And this one is strong but different and it means literally terrified, frightened. It's used of Paul in Acts 9, trembling and frightened in the middle of noonday prayer, God actually shows up. And he's, this word, terrified, frightened, shaking in his boots. God actually shows up. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That was not on his ticket for that day. He was not expecting that. He was never the same again. He was terrified. If you want a good exercise this afternoon, go look at Caravaggio's amazing painter. Look at, look at his dis, dis, depiction of Paul's Damascus Road. Everybody's going every which way, and Paul looks absolutely terrified, as he should. Okay, so amazement, terror, incredible exercise of authority to deliver from the demonic. It's very, very powerful. Nobody comes out of this scene and says, oh, geez, this is just an ordinary guy. They don't even think this is an extraordinary guy. They think, who is this guy? Their breath is taken away. So first of all, it's personal. Second of all, it's powerful. And third of all, and I don't want you to miss this either, it's perturbing. Now, I did that on purpose because it starts with a P and so do my two other points, so that's to get you to remember it. <laughs> but but per- I mean that in a very specific sense. If you, th- if you th- think about the way that the message translated it, What's trying to be conveyed there is, it, this, is this guy has spasms. And did you notice it says a loud voice? Not just a voice, but a loud voice. If you're in the back and you're watching this whole thing, this is upending. This is destabilizing. Paul's experience on the Damascus Road was exactly that, fundamentally upending and destabilizing. When God shows up, things are not the same. He upends things. He's king, and therefore anything that's against his kingship, he's against. So he will inherently disturb. My hero, uh, Jim Elliott, the great missionary uh, statesman who died at the age of 28, going to be a missionary to the Alka Indians, if you know about his story, he says about Jesus, he says this, he says, he was a why person. It's a great image. He says, if you actually watch Jesus' ministry, he was a why person. You, you either put, when you put him in a scene, people either fall down and worship him or else they want to kill him. But there's no alternative. He makes a why. And, and he writes in his diary at one point, he says, Jim Elliott, he says, Lord, make me, make me a why person. 
Make, make my faith so, so reverent and so burning and so beautiful and so authentic that when people meet me, they have to decide because I want to be like Jesus in that way. That's this Jesus. That's not safe. Oh, there's that word. Here comes your C.S. Lewis do- dose. You knew it was coming. But the thing is, the thing is, it's in there for a reason. It's really brilliant theology. So I'm just going to remind you, we're early on in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? So this is the first book in the English series. The children have just gotten in there. They're having tea at the beavers, and all of a sudden, this person, this figure, Aslan, gets mentioned, and it's quite overwhelming to hear about him. Is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan a man, Mr. Beaver said sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know he's the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. And then Lucy, the most spiritually insightful of all the children, follows up. Then he isn't safe, she says. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is not a safe Jesus. This Jesus will upend your life. He will upend your timetable. He will upend your priorities. He will upend your relationships if you really encounter him for who you are. And that's a loaded gun of of authority, it seems to me. Personal authority, powerful authority, perturbing authority. You all with me so far? All right, now I go from preaching to meddling. Huh. I got lots of stories about authority. I'm going to bypass them for this morning. So here's the image I want to give you because I haven't done this yet. My preaching hero, Charles Simeon, who was the rector of, the vicar of Holy Trinity Cambridge for 54 years and one of the greatest preachers the Anglican Church has ever known, says about sermons, he says, you have to screw the word of God into the minds of your hearers, he says. Because when you get a screw really all the way into the wood, almost nothing can get it out. So you see, it's not good enough for me to just talk about the authority of Jesus because it's just vague. It's out there. I have to do more than that. I have to ground it where we all live and move and have our being. I have to be perturbing, just like Jesus. So I've got some thoughts on this. First of all, I want to talk about the authority of Jesus and fear. And the way I want to articulate this is from Luke's gospel. It's a very simple, wonderful line, one of my favorites in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, fear not, little flock. So here's the way I want you to think about this. Think about this scene. Think about being in the back of the synagogue, and think about this. If you're in the back of the synagogue, he's teaching with authority. There goes that demon. There goes the loud voice. You're terrified. You're amazed. Do you ever have a sense in this scene that he's off kilter? Do you ever have the sense that he's surprised? Like halfway through, he says, oh, dang, a demon interrupted my sermon. I wasn't ready for that. Shoot. No. No, 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 no. In this scene that Jesus said you get is entirely in charge of the whole thing. 
which means what? It means this, brothers and sisters. It means that Jesus is in charge of the world. Jesus was in charge on that day. Jesus is in charge right now. Jesus is in charge of our lives. Jesus is Lord. The Jesus who is completely in charge in the synagogue is the Jesus who is completely in charge of your life right now, where you live and move and have your being. Fear not, little flock. You may not understand it, fully how he's in charge and what he's doing that's not the issue right now the issue is that he's in charge and that calls us to give up our fear and to trust whatever's going on in our lives God's in charge of the universe the word history comes from his story because we actually believe as Christians that God is overriding this mess and actually in charge of the whole mess and it's actually going somewhere that's going to make sense at the end of the day and we believe that by faith and it is an incredible mess But somehow, in the tapestry of all our lives, God is weaving the thread that we call history. And it all is somehow going to cohere. And Jesus wants us to understand that what he says at the end of Matthew's Gospel is true for us individually right now. You know the Great Commission, but do you know what comes right before the Great Commission? Let me just remind you, Matthew 28 at the end. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then, he says, go, therefore. All authority, not some, not most, all. So first of all, don't be afraid. I know you have stuff in your life that's driving you crazy. I know you have stuff in your life that you don't fully understand. There are parts of your life that you would like to have differently. And what I'm saying to you is simply this. The Jesus who was in charge in the synagogue at Capernaum is the Jesus who's in charge now. Trust him. Don't be afraid. Fear not, little flock. You all with me so far? Now, the second thing, which is really going from preaching to meddling, is I want to talk about authority and freedom. Now, this is a very dangerous topic uh, because it gets us into the cultural stream. And the way I want to get at it is this. I actually go halfway around the bend on a regular basis when I see uh, accounts of teachers and coaches and various people in this current cultural moment saying things to kids who are in, say, second grade or fifth grade or something, and they look at them and they say, you can be anything you want to be. You can go anywhere you want to go. And we're already in a culture where you're the center of everything, right? The market allows you to buy everything, right? Science allows you to know everything, and technology allows you to do everything, right? So it's all about you and your needs and your wants, and you're in the charge of the universe, and the Microsoft commercial is, where do you want to go today? Yada, yada, yada. What does this culture say about freedom? I'll tell you what it says about freedom. Freedom is simple. Freedom is release from constraints, release from restraints, freedom from. That's what this culture says freedom is. Absolute poppycock. Here's a news flash. I'm not free to climb Mount Everest this afternoon. Here's another news flash. I'm not free to play a Beethoven sonata this afternoon. You know why? Because I haven't had training in mountain climbing and I didn't have enough piano lessons. I'm not free. The people who are really free are the athletes getting ready for the Paris Summer Games who've been preparing for four years, some of them for only one event. And when they run or swim or do whatever that one event is, they're going to do it well. They're the ones who are really free. Think about this. Who's the most free person who ever existed? Jesus of Nazareth. How did he live his life? Under authority, under the lordship of the Father, doing the will of the Father. 
all the way to the garden. Not my will, but thine be done. Christian freedom is not simply freedom from sin. It's freedom for God. And it's freedom with the body of Christ. It's got a threefold dimension. But you're in a culture that says freedom is freedom from, and that's nonsense. Real freedom is freedom under. So here's the thing that I want to challenge you with. If Jesus is really free to live under the lordship of the Father, then you are free to live with the constraints of your life. And what your culture is constantly telling you is, you don't have constraints, you're in charge of everything, you can do whatever you want, you can be whoever you want to be. And what the gospel is all about is, uh, absolutely not, God's planted you here in South Carolina, God's planted you here in the low country, God's planted you here in this family with these children, and this spouse, and this job. This is where you live and move and have your being, and you're constrained. Every human being is constrained. The question is not, are you constrained? The question is, how are you living with the constraints? And what I want to suggest to you this morning is you have an invitation in this passage that, that is very powerful, which is discipleship is freedom under the lordship of Christ. Here's a really good piece of news for you. You and I are not God. You heard it here first. <laughs> you and I are not in charge of the universe. Thank God. Do you have any idea what a mess the universe would be if you and I were in charge? Now, here's the thing. We're all constrained. I, just think about the last week. Just think about the last... Do you actually think I had something to do with the new rector? I didn't pick the new rector. The new rector's doing this, that, and the other thing. What am I supposed to do? I, I'm, I'm constrained. He's the one that's in charge. How am I supposed to do that? I'm supposed to say, this is this church. This is the rector that the search committee and the vestry has called. This is where I am in 2024. Therefore, Lord has freed me up to, li to live in this place. And it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing, it's a mysterious thing, it's an adventurous thing. God has freed me up to do this. Do you ever pray the morning prayer prayer? It's actually in the prayer book, you know, the morning office. There's a prayer in there, which I absolutely love, which is the prayer for peace in morning prayer. Let me remind you of what it says. O God, who art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, listen, whose service is perfect freedom. That is an awesome Anglican prayer, whose service is perfect freedom. Think about Jesus all the way to the end. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His very dead last act, constrained, under authority, and completely free to be who God called him to be. That's real freedom, and it's really awesome. All right, so first, freedom and fear. Second, um, freedom and... Sorry, first, lordship and fear. Second, lordship and freedom. Kendall's going to get back to it. Finally, I want to say a word about prayer and the lordship of Christ. This is really interesting stuff. I want to call you to one of the deepest levels of prayer in the, in the light of the authority of Jesus. And here's the way I want to get at it. If you actually take this passage seriously and you think about the authority of Jesus, here's the thing that ought to strike you. If you look at Jesus' ministry and his life, here's the thing that's overriding impression in relation to his authority that's very striking. He's in conflict all the time. Did you know this? He's in conflict with his disciples. He's in conflict with the religious establishment. He's in conflict with the demonic. He's in conflict with his own family. There's not a dimension of his life where he's not in conflict. And so we actually somehow think that if we're going to be disciples of this Jesus, we're not going to get in conflict? Beep. 
Now, now think about that for a second and think about what that teaches you about prayer. What do, what, if you actually look at the Psalms, which are Luther's phrase, the prayer book of Jesus, but if you actually look at the Psalms, how do they actually read? They're full of conflict between the psalmist and God. The psalmist says, look, it's the third quarter. It's 124 to nothing. You're supposed to be coach of our team. We're getting slaughtered. What's your deal? Why are you downcast, O my soul, Psalm 42? And why are you disquieted within me? He's depressed. He's discouraged. He's like, God, you're supposed to be God. What's the deal? The way that the Lordship is working his life and his experience of his life are not jiving. So what is he doing? Complaining? No. Praying. Praying how? Praying so that he struggles with the constraints and says, please help me to get through this. Please help me understand this. Please help me to wrestle through this so I can have your perspective on it because right now I don't and I'm mad or I'm depressed or I'm frustrated. Is there anybody that had the week that they were expecting last week? Really? Did you have the last year that you were expecting? Really? I mean, if you look out in 2024 and Jesus tarries, does it look exciting? I mean, oh my gosh, I have so many questions for the Lord. Are we really going to go through this? This is nuts. Now, those are all questions, and I've got to wrestle with them, and so do you. And what I want you to do is I want you to be like the psalmist. I want you to say, Lord, you're in charge. You're God. I'm not. I'm not in charge of the universe. You are. However, <laughs> I don't get this. I don't get this. Help me to understand this. I'm in pain. Please give me some relief, etc. That is real prayer. God, the most important thing God wants in prayer is you your heart, where you live and move and have your being. The prayers of the psalmist are honest about the conflict with the lordship of the God to whom they're praying are yours. That's the third question. So we're back to my theme, the authority of Jesus. It's personal, it's powerful, and it's perturbing. But brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can trust him. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.